This episode of Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Wooly Bull Highland Cow Slippers. They're shaggy, fun slippers that you can wear around your house. Trust me, they look like they dust as I walk. I've, I've left a path definitely from the studio to, uh, to the kitchen. Anyway, BunnySlippers.com. This month we will be continuing with more W.B. Du Bois, and we will be listening to The Souls of Black Folk, which is a nonfiction piece, a uh, historical piece, a piece of uh, uh, historical fact. Um, yeah, enjoy. There's There's some music in here. And n- not by me, I didn't score any of this, but enjoy The Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois. Here we go. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. Chapter 7 Of the Black Belt. I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. The Song of Solomon Out of the north, the train thundered, and we woke to see the crimson soil of Georgia stretching away bare and monotonous right and left. Here and there lay straggling, unlovely villages, and lean men loafed leisurely at the depots. Then again came the stretch of pines and clay. Yet we did not nod, nor weary of the scene, for this is historic ground. Right across our track, 360 years ago, wandered the cavalcade of Hernando de Soto, looking for gold and the great sea. And he and his foot-sore captives disappeared yonder in the grim forest to the west. Here sits Atlanta, the city of a hundred hills, with something western, something southern, and something quite its own, in its busy life. Just this side, Atlanta, is the land of the Cherokees, and to the southwest, not far from where Sam Hose was crucified, you may stand on a spot which is today the center of the Negro problem, the center of those nine million men who are America's dark heritage from slavery and the slave trade. Not only is Georgia thus the geographical focus of our Negro population, but in many other respects, both now and yesterday, the Negro problems have seemed to be centered in this state. No other state in the Union can count a million Negroes among its citizens, a population as large as the slave population of the whole Union in 1800. No other state fought so long and strenuously to gather this host of Africans. Oglethorpe fought slavery against law and gospel, but the circumstances which gave Georgia its first inhabitants were not calculated to furnish citizens overnight in their ideas about rum and slaves. Despite the prohibitions of the trustees, these Georgians, like some of their descendants, proceeded to take the law into their own hands. 
and so pliant were the judges, and so flagrant the smuggling, and so earnest were the prayers of Whitefield, that by the middle of the 18th century all restrictions were swept away, and the slave trade went merrily on for fifty years and more. Down in Darien, where the Delegal riots took place some summers ago, there used to come a strong protest against slavery from the Scotch Highlanders, and the Moravians of Ebenezer did not like the system. But not till the Haitian terror of Toussaint was the trade in men even checked, while the National Statute of 1808 did not suffice to stop it. How the Africans poured in, 50,000 between 1790 and 1810, and then from Virginia and from smugglers, 2,000 a year for many years more. So the 30,000 Negroes of Georgia in 1790, doubled in a decade, were over 100,000 in 1810, had reached 200,000 in 1820, and half a million at the time of the war. Thus, like a snake, the black population writhed upward. But we must hasten on our journey. This that we pass as we near Atlanta is the ancient land of the Cherokees, that brave Indian nation which strove so long for its fatherland, until fate and the United States government drove them beyond the Mississippi. If you wish to ride with me, you must come into the Jim Crow car. There will be no objection. Already four other white men and a little white girl with her nurse are in there. Usually the races are mixed in there, but the white coach is all white. Of course, this car is not so good as the other, but it is fairly clean and comfortable. The discomfort lies chiefly in the hearts of those four black men yonder and in mine. We rumble south in quite a businesslike way. The bare red clay and pines of northern Georgia begin to disappear, and in their place appears a rich, rolling land, luxuriant, and here and there well-tilled. This is the land of the Creek Indians, and a hard time the Georgians had to seize it. The towns grow more frequent and more interesting, and brand-new cotton mills rise on every side. Below Macon the world grows darker, for now we approach the Black Belt, that strange land of shadows at which even slaves paled in the past, and whence come now only faint and half-intelligible murmurs to the world beyond. The Jim Crow car grows larger and a shade better. Three rough field hands and two or three white loafers accompany us, and the newsboy still spreads his wares at one end. The sun is setting, but we can see the great cotton country as we enter it, the soil now dark and fertile, now thin and gray, with fruit trees and dilapidated buildings, all the way to Albany. At Albany, in the heart of the Black Belt, we stop. Two hundred miles south of Atlanta, two hundred miles west of the Atlantic, and one hundred miles north of the Great Gulf lies Dougherty County, with ten thousand Negroes and two thousand whites. The Flint River winds down from Andersonville, and, turning suddenly at Albany, the county seat, hurries on to join the Chattahoochee and the sea. Andrew Jackson knew the Flint well and marched across it once to avenge the Indian massacre at Fort Mims. That was in 1814, not long before the Battle of New Orleans. And by the Creek Treaty that followed this campaign, all Doherty County and much other rich land was ceded to Georgia. Still, settlers fought shy of this land, for the Indians were all about, and they were unpleasant neighbors in those days. The Panic of 1837, which Jackson bequeathed to Van Buren, turned the planters from the impoverished lands of Virginia, the Carolinas, and East Georgia toward the West. 
the Indians were removed to Indian territory, and settlers poured into these coveted lands to retrieve their broken fortunes. For a radius of a hundred miles about Albany stretched a great fertile land, luxuriant with forests of pine, oak, ash, hickory, and poplar, hot with the sun and damp with the rich black swampland. And here the cornerstone of the cotton kingdom was laid. Albany is today a wide-streeted, placid southern town with a broad sweep of stores and saloons and flanking rows of homes, whites usually to the north and blacks to the south, Six days in the week, the town looks decidedly too small for itself and takes frequent and prolonged naps. But on Saturday, suddenly the whole country disgorges itself upon the place, and a perfect flood of black peasantry pours through the streets, fills the stores, blocks the sidewalks, chokes the thoroughfares, and takes full possession of the town. They are black, sturdy, uncouth country folk, good-natured and simple, talkative to a degree, and yet far more silent and brooding than the crowds of the Rhine Falls or Naples or Krakow. They drink considerable quantities of whiskey, but do not get very drunk. They talk and laugh loudly at times, but seldom quarrel or fight. They walk up and down the streets, meet and gossip with friends, stare at the shop windows, buy coffee, cheap candy and clothes, and at dusk drive home. Happy? Well, no, not exactly happy but much happier than as though they had not come. Thus, Albany is a real capital, a typical southern county town, the center of the life of 10,000 souls, their point of contact with the outer world, their center of news and gossip, their market for buying and selling, borrowing and lending, their fountain of justice and law. Once upon a time, we knew country life so well and city life so little that we illustrated city life as that of a closely crowded country district. Now the world has well nigh forgotten what the country is, and we must imagine a little city of black people scattered far and wide over 300 lonesome square miles of land, without train or trolley, in the midst of cotton and corn, and wide patches of sand and gloomy soil. It gets pretty hot in southern Georgia in July, a sort of dull, determined heat that seems quite independent of the sun. So it took us some days to muster courage enough to leave the porch and venture out on the long country roads that we might see this unknown world. Finally, we started. It was about ten in the morning, bright with a faint breeze, and we jogged leisurely southward in the valley of the Flint. We passed the scattered box-like cabins of the brickyard hands and the long tenement row facetiously called the Ark, and were soon in the open country and on the confines of the great plantations of other days. There is the Joe Fields place. A rough old fellow was he, and had killed many a nigger in his day. Twelve miles his plantation used to run, a regular barony. It is nearly all gone now. Only straggling bits belong to the family, and the rest has passed to Jews and Negroes. Even the bits which are left are heavily mortgaged, and, like the rest of the land, tilled by tenants. Here is one of them now, a tall brown man, a hard worker and a hard drinker, Illiterate, but versed in farm lore, as his nodding crops declare. This distressingly new board house is his, and he has just moved out of yonder moss-grown cabin with its one square room. From the curtains in Benton's house down the road, a dark, comely face is staring at the strangers, for passing carriages are not everyday occurrences here. Benton is an intelligent, yellow man, with a good-sized family, and manages a plantation blasted by the war, and now the broken staff of the widow. 
He might be well-to-do, they say, but he carouses too much in Albany, and the half-desolate spirit of neglect born of the very soil seems to have settled on these acres. In times past there were cotton gins and machinery here, but they have rotted away. The whole land seems forlorn and forsaken. Here are the remnants of the vast plantations of the Sheldons, the Pellets, and the Rensons, but the souls of them are past. The houses lie in half-ruin or have wholly disappeared. The fences have flown and the families are wandering in the world. Strange vicissitudes have met these whilom masters. Yonder stretched the wide acres of Bildad Razor. He died in wartime, but the upstart overseer hastened to wed the widow. Then he went, and his neighbors too, and now only the black tenant remains. But the shadow hand of the master's grand-nephew or cousin or creditor stretches out of the gray distance to collect the rack-rent remorselessly, and so the land is uncared for and poor. Only black tenants can stand such a system, and they only because they must. Ten miles we have ridden today and have seen no white face. A resistless feeling of depression falls slowly upon us, despite the gaudy sunshine and the green cotton fields. This, then, is the cotton kingdom, the shadow of a marvelous dream. And where is the king? Perhaps this is he, the sweating plowman, tilling his eighty acres with two lean mules and fighting a hard battle with debt. So we sit musing until, as we turn a corner on the sandy road, there comes a fairer scene suddenly in view, a neat cottage snugly ensconced by the road, and near it a little store. A tall bronzed man arises from the porch as we hail him and comes out to our carriage. He is six feet in height with a sober face that smiles gravely. He walks too straight to be a tenant. Yes, he owns 240 acres. Land has run down since the boom days of 1850, he explains, and the cotton is low. Three black tenants live on his place, and in his little store he keeps a small stock of tobacco, snuff, soap, and soda for the neighborhood. Here is his gin house with new machinery just installed. Three hundred bales of cotton went through it last year. Two children he has sent away to school. Yes, he says sadly, he is getting on, but cotton is down to four cents. I know how debt sits staring at him. Wherever the king may be, the parks and palaces of the cotton kingdom have not wholly disappeared. We plunge even now into great groves of oak and towering pine, with an undergrowth of myrtle and shrubbery. This was the home house of the Thompsons, slave barons who drove their coach and four in the merry past. All is silence now, and ashes and tangled weeds. The owner put his whole fortune into the rising cotton industry of the fifties, and with the falling prices of the eighties, he packed up and stole away. Yonder is another grove, with unkempt lawn, great magnolias, and grass-grown paths. The big house stands in half-ruin, its great front door staring blankly at the street, and the back part grotesquely restored for its black tenant. A shabby, well-built negro is he, unlucky and irresolute. He digs hard to pay rent to the white girl who owns the remnant of the place. She married a policeman and lives in Savannah. Now and again we come to churches. Here is one now. Shepherds, they call it. A great whitewashed barn of a thing, 
perched on stilts of stone and looking for all the world as though it were just resting here a moment and might be expected to waddle off down the road at almost any time. And yet it is the center of a hundred cabin homes, and sometimes of a Sunday, five hundred persons from far and near gather here and talk and eat and sing. There is a schoolhouse near, a very airy, empty shed, but even this is an improvement, for usually the school is held in the church. The churches vary from log huts to those like shepherds, and the schools from nothing to this little house that sits demurely on the county line. It is a tiny plank house, perhaps ten by twenty, and has within a double row of unplaned benches resting mostly on legs, sometimes on boxes. Opposite the door is a square homemade desk. In one corner are the ruins of a stove, and in the other a dim blackboard. It is the cheerfulest schoolhouse I have seen in Doherty, save in town. Back of the schoolhouse is a lodge house, two stories high and not quite finished. Societies meet there, societies to care for the sick and bury the dead, and these societies grow and flourish. We had come to the boundaries of Doherty, and we were about to turn west along the county line when all these sites were pointed out to us by a kindly old man, black, white-haired, and seventy. Forty-five years he had lived here, and now supports himself and his old wife by the help of the steer tethered yonder and the charity of his black neighbors. He shows us the farm of the hills just across the county line in Baker, a widow and two strapping sons who raised ten bales, one need not add cotton down here, last year. There are fences and pigs and cows, and the soft-voiced, velvet-skinned young Memnon who sauntered half-bashfully over to greet the strangers, is proud of his home. We turn now to the west, along the county line. Great dismantled trunks of pines tower above the green cotton fields, cracking their naked, gnarled fingers toward the border of living forest beyond. There's little beauty in this region, only a sort of crude abandon that suggests power, a naked grandeur, as it were. The houses are bare and straight, there are no hammocks or easy chairs and few flowers. So when, as here at Rawdon's, one sees a vine clinging to a little porch and home-like windows peeping over the fences, one takes a long breath. I think I never before quite realized the place of the fence in civilization. This is the land of the unfenced, where crouch on either hand scores of ugly one-room cabins, cheerless and dirty. Here lies the Negro problem in its naked dirt and penury, and here are no fences. But now and then the crisscross rails or straight palings break into view, and then we know a touch of culture is near. Of course, Harrison Gohagen, a quiet yellow man, young, smooth-faced, and diligent, of course he is lord of some hundred acres, and we expect to see a vision of well-kept rooms and fat beds and laughing children, or has he not fine fences? And those over yonder? Why should they build fences on the rack-rented land? It will only increase their rent. On we wind through sand and pines and glimpses of old plantations, till there creeps into sight a cluster of buildings, wood and brick, mills and houses, and scattered cabins. It seemed quite a village. As it came nearer and nearer, however, the aspect changed. The buildings were rotten, the bricks were falling out. 
The mills were silent, and the store was closed. Only in the cabins appeared, now and then, a bit of lazy life. I could imagine the place under some weird spell, and was half-minded to search out the princess. An old ragged black man, honest, simple, and improvident, told us the tale. The wizard of the north, the capitalist, had rushed down in the seventies to woo this coy, dark soil. He bought a square mile or more, and for a time the field hands sang, the gins groaned, and the mills buzzed. Then came a change. The agent's son embezzled the funds and ran off with them. Then the agent himself disappeared. Finally, the new agent stole even the books, and the company, in wrath, closed its business and its houses, refused to sell, and let houses and furniture and machinery rust and rot. So the water's luring plantation was stilled by the spell of dishonesty and stands like some gaunt rebuke to a scarred land. Somehow that plantation ended our day's journey, for I could not shake off the influence of that silent scene. Back toward town we glided, past the straight and thread-like pines, past a dark tree-dotted pond where the air was heavy with a dead, sweet perfume. White, slender-legged curlews flitted by us, and the garnet blooms of the cotton looked gay against the green and purple stalks. A peasant girl was hoeing in the field, white-turbaned and black-limbed. All this we saw, but the spell still lay upon us. How curious a land is this! How full of untold story, of tragedy and laughter, and the rich legacy of human life, shadowed with a tragic past and big with future promise. This is the Black Belt of Georgia. Doherty County is the west end of the Black Belt, and men once called it the Egypt of the Confederacy. It is full of historic interest. First, there is the swamp to the west, where the Chickasawhatchee flows sullenly southward. The shadow of an old plantation lies at its edge, forlorn and dark. Then comes the pool. Pendant gray moss and brackish waters appear, and forests filled with wildfowl. In one place, the wood is on fire, smoldering in dull red anger, but nobody minds. Then the swamp grows beautiful. A raised road built by chained Negro convicts dips down into it and forms a way walled and almost covered in living green. Spreading trees spring from a prodigal luxuriance of undergrowth. Great dark green shadows fade into the black background until all is one mass of tangled semi-tropical foliage, marvelous in its weird, savage splendor. Once we crossed a black, silent stream, where the sad trees and writhing creepers, all glinting fiery yellow and green, seemed like some vast cathedral, some green Milan builded of wildwood. And as I crossed, I seemed to see again that fierce tragedy of seventy years ago. Osceola, the Indian Negro chieftain, had risen in the swamps of Florida, vowing vengeance. His war cry reached the red creeks of Doherty, and their war cry rang from the Chattahoochee to the sea. Men and women and children fled and fell before them as they swept into Doherty. In yonder shadows, a dark and hideously painted warrior glided stealthily on, another and another, until three hundred had crept into the treacherous swamp. 
Then the false slime closing about them called the white men from the east. Waist deep they fought beneath the tall trees until the war cry was hushed and the Indians glided back into the west. Small wonder the wood is red. Then came the black slaves. Day after day the clank of chained feet marching from Virginia and Carolina to Georgia was heard in these rich swamplands. Day after day the songs of the callous, the wail of the motherless, and the muttered curses of the wretched echoed from the flint to the Chickasawhatchee until by 1860 there had risen in West Doherty perhaps the richest slave kingdom the modern world ever knew. A hundred and fifty barons commanded the labor of nearly six thousand negroes, held sway over farms with ninety thousand acres tilled land, valued even in times of cheap soil at three millions of dollars. Twenty thousand bales of ginned cotton went yearly to England, new and old, and men that came there bankrupt made money and grew rich. In a single decade, the cotton output increased fourfold, and the value of the lands was tripled. It was the heyday of the nouveau riche, and a life of careless extravagance among the masters. Four and six bobtailed thoroughbreds rolled their coaches to town. Open hospitality and gay entertainment were the rule. Parks and groves were laid out, rich with flower and vine. And in the midst stood the low, wide-hauled big house, with its porch and columns and great fireplaces. And yet with all this, there was something sordid, something forced, a certain feverish unrest and recklessness. For was not all this show and tinsel built upon a groan? This land was a little hell, said a ragged, brown, and grave-faced man to me. We were seated near a roadside blacksmith shop, and behind was the bare ruin of some master's home. I've seen niggers drop dead in the furrow, they were kicked aside, and the plow never stopped. Down in the guardhouse, that's where the blood ran. With such foundations, a kingdom must in time sway and fall. The masters moved to Macon and Augusta, and left only the irresponsible overseers on the land. And the result is such ruin as this. The Lloyd home place, great waving oaks, a spread of lawn, myrtles, and chestnuts, all ragged and wild, a solitary gatepost standing where once was a castle entrance, an old rusty anvil lying amid rotted bellows and wood in the ruins of a blacksmith's shop, a wide, rambling old mansion, brown and dingy, filled now with the grandchildren of the slaves who once waited on its tables, while the family of the master has dwindled to two lone women who live in Macon and feed hungrily off the remnants of an earldom. So we ride on past phantom gates and falling homes, past the once flourishing farms of the Smiths, the Gandys, and the Lagores, and find all dilapidated and half-ruined, even there where a solitary white woman, a relic of other days, sits alone in state among miles of Negroes and rides to town in her ancient coach each day. End of chapter 7, part 1. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. Chapter 7, part 2.
This was indeed the Egypt of the Confederacy, the rich granary whence potatoes and corn and cotton poured out to the famished and ragged Confederate troops as they battled for a cause lost long before 1861. Sheltered and secure, it became the place of refuge for families, wealth, and slaves. Yet even then, the hard, ruthless rape of the land began to tell. The red clay subsoil already had begun to peer above the loam. The harder the slaves were driven, the more careless and fatal was their farming. Then came the revolution of war and emancipation, the bewilderment of reconstruction. And now, what is the Egypt of the Confederacy, and what meaning has it for the nation's weal or woe? It is a land of rapid contrast and of curiously mingled hope and pain. Here sits a pretty blue-eyed quadroon hiding her bare feet. She was married only last week, and yonder in the field is her dark young husband, hoeing to support her at thirty cents a day without board. Across the way is Gatesby, brown and tall, lord of two thousand acres, shrewdly won and held. There is a store conducted by his black son, a blacksmith, and a ginnery. Five miles below here is a town owned and controlled by one white New Englander. He owns almost a Rhode Island county, with thousands of acres and hundreds of black laborers. Their cabins look better than most, and the farm, with machinery and fertilizers, is much more businesslike than any in the county, although the manager drives hard bargains in wages. When now we turn and look five miles above, there on the edge of town are five houses of prostitutes, two of blacks and three of whites. And in one of the houses of the whites, a worthless black boy was harbored too openly two years ago, so he was hanged for rape. And here, too, is the high whitewashed fence of the stockade, as the county prison is called. The white folks say it is ever full of black criminals. The black folks say that only colored boys are sent to jail, and they not because they are guilty, but because the state needs criminals to eke out its income by their forced labor. Immigrants are heirs of the slave baron in Doherty, and as we ride westward by wide-stretching cornfields and stubby orchards of peach and pear, we see on all sides within the circle of dark forest a land of Canaan. Here and there are tales of projects for money-getting, born in the swift days of Reconstruction, improvement companies, wine companies, mills and factories. Most failed, and foreigners fell heir. It is a beautiful land, this Doherty west of the Flint. The forests are wonderful. The solemn pines have disappeared. And this is the oaky woods, with its wealth of hickories, beeches, oaks, and palmettos. But a pall of debt hangs over the beautiful land. The merchants are in debt to the wholesalers. The planters are in debt to the merchants. The tenants owe the planters. And laborers bow and bend beneath the burden of it all. Here and there a man has raised his head above these murky waters. We passed one fenced stock farm with grass and grazing cattle that looked very homelike after endless corn and cotton. Here and there are black freeholders. There is the gaunt, dull black Jackson with his hundred acres. I says, look up. If you don't look up, you can't get up, remarks Jackson philosophically. And he's gotten up. Dark Carter's neat barns would do credit to New England. His master helped him to get a start, 
But when the black man died last fall, the master's sons immediately laid claim to the estate. And them white folks will get it too, says my yellow gossip. I turn from these well-tended acres with a comfortable feeling that the Negro is rising. Even then, however, the fields as we proceed begin to redden and the trees disappear. Rows of old cabins appear filled with renters and laborers, cheerless, bare, and dirty for the most part, although here and there the very age and decay makes the scene picturesque. A young black fellow greets us. He is twenty-two and just married. Until last year he had good luck renting. Then cotton fell, and the sheriff seized and sold all he had. So he moved here where the rent is higher, the land poorer, and the owner inflexible. He rents a $40 mule for $20 a year. Poor lad, a slave at 22. This plantation, owned now by a foreigner, was a part of the famous Bolton estate. After the war, it was for many years worked by gangs of Negro convicts, and black convicts then were even more plentiful than now. It was a way of making Negroes work, and the question of guilt was a minor one. Hard tales of cruelty and mistreatment of the chained freemen are told, but the county authorities were deaf until the free labor market was nearly ruined by wholesale migration. Then they took the convicts from the plantations, but not until one of the fairest regions of the oaky woods had been ruined and ravished into a red waste, out of which only a Yankee or an immigrant could squeeze more blood from debt-cursed tenants. No wonder that Luke Black, slow, dull, and discouraged, shuffles to our carriage and talks hopelessly, why should he strive? Every year finds him deeper in debt. How strange that Georgia, the world-heralded refuge of poor debtors, should bind her own to sloth and misfortune as ruthlessly as ever England did. The poor land groans with its birth pains and brings forth scarcely a hundred pounds of cotton to the acre, where fifty years ago it yielded eight times as much. Of his meager yield, the tenant pays from a quarter to a third in rent, and most of the rest in interest on food and supplies bought on credit. Twenty years, yonder sunken-cheeked old black man has labored under that system, and now turned day laborer is supporting his wife and boarding himself on his wages of a dollar and a half a week, received only part of the year. The Bolton convict farm formerly included the neighboring plantation, here it was that the convicts were lodged in the great log prison still standing. A dismal place it still remains, with rows of ugly huts filled with surly, ignorant tenants. What rent do you pay here? I inquired. I don't know. What is it, Sam? All we make, answered Sam. It is a depressing place. Bare, unshaded, with no charm of past association, only a memory of forced human toil, now, then, and before the war. They are not happy, these black men whom we meet throughout this region. There is little of the joyous abandon and playfulness which we are wont to associate with the plantation negro. At best, the natural good nature is edged with complaint, or has changed into sullenness and gloom, and now and then it blazes forth in veiled but hot anger. I remember one big red-eyed black whom we met by the roadside. Forty-five years he had labored on this farm, beginning with nothing and still having nothing. 
To be sure, he had given four children a common school training, and perhaps if the new fence law had not allowed unfenced crops in West Doherty, he might have raised a little stock and kept ahead. As it is, he is hopelessly in debt, disappointed, and embittered. He stopped us to inquire after the black boy in Albany, whom it was said a policeman had shot and killed for loud talking on the sidewalk. And then he said slowly, Let a white man touch me and he dies. I don't boast this. I don't say it around loud or before the children, but I mean it. I seen him whip my father and my old mother in them cotton rolls till the blood ran by. And we passed on. Now Sears whom we met lolling under the chubby oak trees, was of quite different fiber. Happy? Well, yes, he laughed and flipped pebbles and thought the world was as it was. He had worked here twelve years and has nothing but a mortgaged mule. Children? Yes, seven, but they hadn't been to school this year, couldn't afford books and clothes, and couldn't spare their work. There go part of them to the fields now, Three big boys astride mules and a strapping girl with bare brown legs. Careless ignorance and laziness here, fierce hate and vindictiveness there. These are the extremes of the Negro problem which we met that day. And we scarce knew which we preferred. Here and there we meet distinct characters quite out of the ordinary. One came out of a piece of newly cleared ground, making a wide detour to avoid the snakes. He was an old, hollow-cheeked man with a drawn and characterful brown face. He had a sort of self-contained quaintness and rough humor impossible to describe, a certain cynical earnestness that puzzled one. These niggers were jealous of me over on the other place, he said. And so me and the old woman begged this piece of woods, and I cleared it up myself. Made nothing for two years, but I reckon I got a crop now. The cotton looked tall and rich, and we praised it. He curtsied low, and then bowed almost to the ground, with an imperturbable gravity that seemed almost suspicious. Then he continued, My mule died last week, a calamity in this land, equal to a devastating fire in town. But a white man loaned me another. Then he added, eyeing us, Oh, I get along with white folks. We turned the conversation. Bears? Deer? He answered. Well, I should say there were. And he let fly a string of brave oaths as he told hunting tales of the swamp. We left him standing in the middle of the road, looking after us, and yet apparently not noticing us. The whistle place, which includes his bit of land, was bought soon after the war by an English syndicate, the Dixie Cotton and Corn Company. A marvelous deal of style their factor put on, with his servants and coach and six, so much so that the concern soon landed in inextricable bankruptcy. Nobody lives in the old house now, but a man comes each winter out of the north and collects his high rents. I know not which are the more touching, such old empty houses or the homes of the master's sons. Sad and bitter tales lie hidden back of those white doors, Tales of poverty, of struggle, of disappointment. A revolution such as that of 63 is a terrible thing. They that rose rich in the morning often slept in paupers' beds 
Beggars and vulgar speculators rose to rule over them, and their children went astray. See yonder sad-colored house with its cabins and fences and glad crops? It is not glad within. Last month the prodigal son of the struggling father wrote home from the city for money. Money? Where was it to come from? And so the son rose in the night and killed his baby and killed his wife and shot himself dead. And the world passed on. I remember wheeling around a bend in the road beside a graceful bit of forest and a singing brook. A long low house faced us with porch and flying pillars, great oaken door, and a broad lawn shining in the evening sun. But the window panes were gone, the pillars were worm-eaten, and the moss-grown roof was falling in. Half curiously, I peered through the unhinged door and saw where, on the wall across the hall, was once written in gay letters a faded welcome. Quite a contrast to the southwestern part of Dougherty County is the northwest. Soberly timbered in oak and pine, it has none of that half-tropical luxuriance of the southwest, then, too, there are fewer signs of a romantic past and more of systematic modern land-grabbing and money-getting. White people are more in evidence here, and farmer and hired labor replace to some extent the absentee landlord and rack-rented tenant. The crops have neither the luxuriance of the richer land nor the signs of neglect so often seen, and there were fences and meadows here and there. Most of this land was poor, and beneath the notice of the slave baron before the war. Since then, his poor relations and foreign immigrants have seized it. The returns of the farmer are too small to allow much for wages, and yet he will not sell off small farms. There is the Negro, Sanford. He has worked 14 years as overseer on the Ladson place, and paid out enough for fertilizers to have bought a farm, but the owner will not sell off a few acres. Two children... A boy and a girl are hoeing sturdily in the fields on the farm where Corliss works. He is smooth-faced and brown and is fencing up his pigs. He used to run a successful cotton gin, but the Cottonseed Oil Trust has forced the price of ginning so low that he says it hardly pays him. He points out a stately old house over the way as the home of Pa Willis. We eagerly ride over, for Pa Willis was the tall and powerful black Moses who led the Negroes for a generation and led them well. He was a Baptist preacher, and when he died, 2,000 black people followed him to the grave. And now they preach his funeral sermon each year. His wife lives here, a weazened, sharp-featured little woman who curtsied quaintly as we greeted her. Further on lives Jack Delson, the most prosperous Negro farmer in the county. It is a joy to meet him, a great, broad-shouldered, handsome black man, intelligent and jovial. Six hundred and fifty acres he owns and has eleven black tenants, a neat and tidy home nestled in a flower garden, and a little store stands beside it. We pass the Munson place, where a plucky white widow is renting and struggling, and the eleven hundred acres of the Senate plantation with its Negro overseer, then the character of the farms begins to change, nearly all the lands belonging to Russian Jews. The overseers are white, and the cabins are bare, board houses scattered here and there. The rents are high, 
and day laborers and contract hands abound. It is a keen, hard struggle for living here, and few have time to talk. Tired with the long ride, we gladly drive into Gillensville. It is a silent cluster of farmhouses standing on the crossroads, with one of its doors closed and the other kept by a Negro preacher. They tell great tales of busy times at Gillensville before all the railroads came to Albany. Now it is chiefly a memory. Riding down the street, we stop at the preacher's and seat ourselves before the door. It was one of those scenes one cannot soon forget. A wide, low little house whose motherly roof reached over and sheltered a snug little porch. There we sat after the long, hot drive, drinking cool water, the talkative little storekeeper who is my daily companion, the silent old black woman patching pantaloons and saying never a word, the ragged picture of helpless misfortune who called in just to see the preacher, and finally the neat matronly preacher's wife, plump, yellow, and intelligent. Own land, said the wife, well, only this house. Then she added quietly, we did buy 700 acres across up yonder and paid for it. But they cheated us out of it. Sales was the owner. Sales, echoed the ragged misfortune, who was leaning against the balustrade and listening. He's a regular cheat. I worked for him 37 days this spring, and he paid me in cardboard checks, which were to be cashed at the end of the month, but he never cashed them. Kept putting me off. Then the sheriff came and took my mule and my corn and furniture. Furniture? But furniture is exempt from seizure by law. Well, he took it just the same, said the hard-faced man. End of chapter 7